This episode of Mountain View Scattered was recorded as a part of our 2018 conference entitled Everyday Justice, God's Heart in the Christian Life. The presenter during this session is John Skeepers. He is the founder of Isapambana, the Center for Biblical Justice, based out of Cape Town. We hope that you enjoy. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. To Aphia, our sister. To Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear about your faith in the Lord. Uh, sorry, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Anisimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very life, your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confidence of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. In 1857, the Dutch Reformed Church had a, um, they held their synod, their, I think it was an annual synod at that time, and there was a big issue on the table. It was a big contentious issue they wanted to discuss. And this was the issue that was on their table. Oh, this was the issue they were discussing at that synod. They debated whether persons of color admitted as members of the church should be served Holy Communion equally with born Christians. Their words, not mine. And they declared that while it was desirable and scriptural that our members from the heathen, again, their words, not mine, should be taken up and incorporated in our existing congregation wherever that can be done, but where this rule, because of the weakness of some, should stand in the way of the advancement of Christ's cause among the heathen, the congregations raised up, or to be raised up from the heathen, shall enjoy their Christian rights in a separate building or institution. Did you catch that? This, as, they, as they discussed this, as they went back and forth, their declaration was, so, so should... So should Christians 
who come for, who are in this case black or, or Khoisan Christians who are, who have been raised up and they're coming into the church and now should they be sharing communion? Should we be sharing communion with people who are different to us? And there was it was a heated uh, sin and they went back and forth and committees and subcommittees and subtexting and and all this kind of thing going on as people are discussing things. And then they come back and this is their final resolution. They say while it is both desirable and biblical, both desirable and biblical, we're going to do the opposite. Because some are weak, and I think it's, that's based on a misapplication of the Roman passage, those Romans passages, because some do not want to do this. And I think we can read in there, we can say because some people are harboring white supremacy, because some white people cannot handle having a church with people who are different to them, we are going to pander to that sin. And we're going to do what is not desirable to us and what is unbiblical. And we're going to have communion in separate buildings. Out of a desire, I suppose the desire to not split the church. Do you see that? Even the sinner, they were worried. They were worried that if they did this, they would split the church. But what they meant is they would split the white church. But we don't mind if we split the church in other ways. I don't need to tell you that this decision, born out of pandering to racial supremacy tendencies, has led, maybe not directly, but it's certainly part of this trajectory of leading to churches, to separate churches, separate church buildings, eventually entire separate churches, entire separate denominations, and eventually, in fact, the doctrine of separate development. Please note, I said the doctrine of separate development. It was a church policy before it was a legal policy. And finally, to full-blown apartheid. Henrik Verwut, the former um, Prime Minister of South Africa, um, <clears throat> he once famously described apartheid as a policy of good neighborliness, alluding to the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a rootedness of this, this segregation in the church. And we are still living with the decisions made by the church of 1857 today. Some denominations in our city are still separated. Some of those separate denominations that were created have not been reconciled. Our, and our communities, and we, we may look at some of those and say, yeah, but our churches are, we've, we've reconciled somewhat. We, are, we allow different races into our church. We're not doing that anymore. But really... Look at our communities. Our communities remain, by and large, separate and divided to this day. Our churches remain separate and divided to this day. We can talk about black churches and white churches and colored churches. And we're not being racist per se. We're just describing what we see there. Though it is both desirable and biblical that the unity of the church is maintained, we don't practice that. We are the same as we are, we're living with this legacy. We are still in our cities, we are still economically and materially vastly unequal to this day. We are still divided. Our resources, our schooling, and our economic capital reflect vastly different histories. Our churches remain areas of great inequality when it comes to power, resources, conferences, positions of power and influence. Who are the people who can, who are the voices that speak? Who are the people who have authority? Who are our pastors? Who are, who are our leaders? Very often there are people who look like me, white, middle-aged men. 
And the book of Philemon is a story of a similar thing. As we live with that legacy, or we live with that legacy of division, of how of, of, of the church actually being complicit, of, of a society that's broken and divided along racial and economic lines, we come to look at the book of Philemon, which is actually the story of the gospel at work in a very practical and a concrete contextual situation. The house church of Colossae. It's written sometime in either the 8050s or 60s, uh, depending on where you think Paul is imprisoned. He was imprisoned a number of times uh, for preaching the gospel, and there's a number of theories about which imprisonment this was, whether he's imprisoned in Ephesus or Rome. And although I think that is an important discussion to have, and it's important historically, I don't think it really changes the fundamental significance of this letter, the fundamental feel of this letter. Um, and so this letter, this letter is written to a wealthy homeowner, uh, a wealthy businessman, we can only assume, in the city called Philemon. The church meets in his home. So in verse 2, we see that uh, he says to a fire, a sister, oh, sorry, and to the church that meets in your home, which means that he's, he has, he's a pers- person of some kind of wealth. He's the head of a household church. And usually in those days, the, the head of the household church was, was someone who, who could open up their home. And you took kind of that, that family, that father role in the church. And so to be a head of a church uh, required that you, you had some kind of prestige, some kind of wealth. You were able to open up your home. Um, even the fact that the church meets there. And Paul actually goes further. He describes Philemon as a dear friend and a fellow worker in verse 1. He calls him a partner in the gospel. This is someone who has ministered side by side with Paul. It's someone who Paul cares, cares deeply about. Um, and someone who, who's active as a, as a minister, it's someone who's, who's active in his community, someone who's a good leader in the church. Look how Paul describes him um, in verse 4. He says, well, he says, in verse 4, he says, I always thank my God as I hear, remember you my prayers. Why? Because I hear about your faith and your love for all the saints. And, I, and he carries on, he says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so you'll have a full understanding of every good thing. And in verse 7, he says, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brothers, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. You've been a good pastor. You've been a faithful minister. You have done good gospel ministry in this church, in this community. So it's someone who Paul loves. It's someone who's, 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 who's a faithful Christian. It's someone who's, who's a faithful leader in his community. And yet Paul, there's a hint in verse 6 that Paul has something more in mind, isn't it? He's not negating everything, who Philemon is. He's not negating the work he's done. In fact, he's commending him for it. He's saying, you are a good pastor of these people. You are a good shepherd. You love and serve your people. But I pray that your partnership with us in the faith, he says in verse 6, may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Well, what is this good thing that Paul has in mind? What is this, this good thing that will deepen your, understa- your understanding of the faith? Well, Philemon's slave, Anisimus, has run away. It's quite likely that he has stolen some money from him. Slaves wouldn't have had access to their own money. So in order to run away, in order to have transport and to feed himself, he would have to provide a means where he could run away. That's why very often slaves didn't run away, because they didn't have the access. If you run away, you're, you're helpless. So in order for him to run away, 
It means you'd probably have had to st steal something. Um, in verse 18, I think there's a hint of that when Paul says, if he, that's Onesimus, has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. So Paul, Paul is saying here, he's done you wrong. And, it's, and there's this pro possibly even a hint, and some of the, the, the commentators and the, the scholars who talk about this, they say that it's possibly even likely that Onesimus was a trusted servant. Um, I just want to say one thing about the word slave. When we read the word slave, very often we have the image of transatlantic slavery. We think of, of black people taken in chains over the ocean and going to America. It's not quite the same. It's more like indentured servanthood. It, trust me, the, and I, I want to say that I think some of this, the, that first century slavery had some terrible uh, dehumanizing consequences, but we mustn't think of it in the same way as the transatlantic slavery. And very often it was an economic slavery. It wasn't, a racial, it wasn't a racial slavery. So slaves could be people from any races, people who got themselves into trouble economically. Uh, people, sometimes they were prisoners of war. But, and it was possible that unlike transatlantic slavery, you could, get just, you could work yourself out of slavery by earning, by working off your debt or some, some kind of things like that. So we're reading something slightly different here, even though I don't think we see a good... It's not, we're not talking about a good social institution. Okay. So... Um, I think, so there's a sense that Onesimus is probably one of his most trusted slaves or servants. There's, it's possible, it's quite possible that Onesimus has been sent on an errand. He's, sent, he's been sent with a task from Philemon. And he's been given money to pay for his travel. He's been given money to pay for whatever task. And it's likely that that's possibly the money he stole and he took and he ran away with. So not only do you have here a guy who's stolen from, from, from Philemon, but he's actually betrayed his trust. And if you've ever had someone betray your trust, you think, I, I thought I could trust him. I thought he wouldn't steal from me. I thought he wouldn't take it from me. And, now, and, and what happens? You feel angry. So there's a good chance that, that Philemon is not only feeling like this, 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 this guy has run away, he's, he's stolen his money from me, he's betrayed my trust. I'm, I'm angry with him if I see that guy. And remember that, that slavery in those days meant that um, it meant that, that, that slaves who got out of line could be severely physically punished. Some parts of the Roman Empire even, even meant you could kill your slave. But they could certainly be, um, certainly be subjected to severe beatings, imprisonment, all kinds of things. And even though Philemon's a Christian, I think at this moment, if he's like me, he's thinking, when I get hold of that guy, when I get hold of that guy, I'm going to throw the book at him. The law is on my side here. He's stolen from me, he's betrayed me, he's run away. I mean, there's three strikes. But what's happened to Onesimus? Well, he's run away to the nearest city, either Ephesus or Rome, depending on where Paul is. Possibly, Ephesus is probably the nearest city to get it lost in, but I think if you're a runaway, if you're on the run, probably you're going to go to the biggest city with the most people, and you're just going to try to disappear. That's what I would do. So possibly he's in Rome. What's the best place to be anonymous? Somehow he meets Paul. We see in verse 10. Uh, he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Um, so he meets Paul. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps he even sought him out. It, there's, there's a hint that, that one of Paul's fellow um, prisoners or, or, or laborers, Epaphras, knew him. So perhaps Epaphras heard he was there. Perhaps Philemon had a good relation with Epaphras, and he came to, to seek him out to say, listen, there's, there's been maybe, maybe there was, there was a reason even Onesimus ran away. Maybe Philemon had been treating him unjustly. 
And he sought him out to say, you've got, to, you've got to do something here. You've got to sort it out. We're unsure. Whatever happens is somehow Paul and Onesimus make contact and something miraculous and beautiful happens. Onesimus gets converted. Onesimus, Onesimus becomes a follower of Jesus. This runaway slave who's betrayed his master, who's, who's stolen money from him, whose master is extremely angry with him, his master who runs a house church in uh, Colossae, and now Onesimus has become a Christian. And after his conversion, something interesting happens. Paul uses very interesting language. He says, uh, in verse 11, he says this, he says, Formerly he who was useless to you, Formerly he, that's Onesimus, was useless to you, Philemon, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Now, the, the name Onesimus, actually, uh, means useful. Um, I, I, I somehow wonder if, that's, if that was actually his name, or like we are familiar with the process where slaves were renamed. And sometimes I wonder if that's the name Philemon gave him. It sounds like a really, really good slave name, doesn't it? I'm going to name you useful, because I'm hoping you will be. You know, and we kind of, so perhaps it's even that, but Paul, well, whatever it is, even if maybe his parents named him that because they were hoping he'd be useful, I don't know. Um, but really, you have this thing, and Paul is saying, previously, he who was useless to you, and that's probably exactly how Philemon felt, right? He's like, this guy is a useless piece of rubbish, he's run away, he's betrayed my trust, he's hurt me, he is useless, and Paul's saying, he who you regard as useful, he has come to know Christ, and he is now useful, and actually, it's more than that because he's saying he has given, he has become useful both to you and to me. And um, uh, was it in verse 13, he says, he has actually given to me the help that I was hoping you would give. So him who you regarded as useless has become useful in actually doing what you ought to have done. I think it's a little underlying thing here. So we're seeing, we're seeing some of those power dynamics are being subverted a bit, aren't we? Onesimus is, is giving the help that Philemon was supposed to give, Philemon was supposed to give. Who's useful, who's useless here? It's an interesting little play there. I don't think Paul's saying it, but I think it's a play. And I think, I think uh, Philemon would be going, hang on, what's going on here? What is Paul saying exactly? So Paul and so Onesimus becomes useful to Paul. He becomes a, a fellow worker in the gospel with Paul. He becomes someone who, who becomes dear to Paul. But Onesimus is still officially a runaway slave. He's still officially a fugitive, a thief even, if, first, if we're reading verse 18 correctly. And Onesimus still belongs to his master, Philemon. And so Paul's caught in a dilemma, isn't he? The one who he calls his very heart, Onesimus. He says, and this is my very heart, my very heart and his dear friend that he calls Philemon are in conflict with one another. The one belongs to the other. The one has betrayed or stolen from and deserted other. And here they are, both Christians dear to Paul. What should he do? Is reconciliation and healing even possible? Can the gospel reshape these traditional relationships, these traditional power dynamics? Can it break the cycle of hurt and pain? And unbelievably, I think it's unbelievable, Paul decides to send Onesimus back to Philemon. I don't know how Onesimus must have felt at that moment. I don't even know how Paul must have felt at the moment. 
Because we actually don't know what's going to happen. In fact, we don't know what happened. Paul makes this decision. Paul says, I think this is the right thing. I'm sending you back to Philemon, but I'm sending you a letter. I'm sending, I'm sending you with this letter where I'm explaining what's going on to Philemon. And as, he, as Onesimus is going back, he's holding this letter from Paul, and he's thinking, this man could imprison me, he could beat me, he could kill me. I'm going back holding this letter, trusting Paul, trusting this theology he's taught me. And we too, like Philemon, we are like Onesimus and Philemon, we are faced with this question in our country today. How could these two possibly come together? How could Onesimus and Philemon possibly come together? There is so much hurt and pain and betrayal. There is so much, the power dynamics are so tipped in the favor of the one. Honestly, I'm going to be, I've thought about this a lot. If I'm Onesimus, I'm going to go back and halfway on my way back to Philemon, I'm going to scoot. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I could do this. Imagine you're Philemon. You're busy there with your house church, singing, praying, doing whatever, doing your nice Christian spiritual things. And up the driveway comes, uh, wait, who do you send with him? Um, uh, I think it's Epaphras. I've gone, so he sends Epaphras back, and he says, oh, here's Epaphras, he's coming, he's coming, and wait, 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 Dad. Who's that with him? Who's that with him? It's Anissimus. And who's holding the letter? It's Anissimus. What's going to happen? Can these two ever come together? Can there be reconciliation? On what basis could these two possibly be reconciled? And friends, that is our question in South Africa today. On what basis could we possibly be reconciled? Can these two, and it's not always as simple as just these two, but can these two come together? Can white and black and colored and Indian, can we be reconciled with one another? Local and foreign, can we actually come together? Is it possible, is it just nice talk that we say on our TV, that we say at special occasions? Is it like the right thing we should say? What possible reason? I mean, if you think of a Philemon and Onesimus, you say, there is no possible reason why they should forgive and come together. There is no possible reason why we should forgive and come together. I want to say two things. By the way, I know that's a very long intro, so don't worry, it's, it's weighted a little bit um, here. And I wanted to set the scene, so it's not going to be, that's not like three points all at that, set, that length. But I want to say two things. I want to say, first of all, the gospel redefines who we are and how we live together. I, um, when I taught it, uh, sorry, my, my principal when I was at Bible college was an Australian guy, an old guy, but a real like kind of nutty professor, like just got lost in his head. Some of you, I just, I don't know, nutty, I don't know if you know him. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And he, um, and he would just go, he just beat to a different drum, if I can use that. And uh, the story is going is that one day he was invited to one of his big churches, and they wanted to introduce him. And they said, like, uh, I said, uh, David, David, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, we want to know a bit about you. So, David, who are you? And he kind of like, gave him the mic, and he was like, yeah, yeah, who am I? Yeah, that's a great question. How do we define ourselves? 
who, who am I? And he was, you can see he was getting on this whole big philosophical debate about who are we, who are any of us? And luckily the interview at that point kind of said, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your hobbies and where you're at church or whatever. And they cut it off with it. But really that question, and it's probably not in the appropriate context, but really that's an important question. Who are you? Who am I? What is our identity? How do you define yourself? How do you see yourself? You see, because we always act and we live and out of our identity, who we see ourselves. Do you see yourselves primarily as a white person, as a gossip-speaking person, as a man, as a South African? Uh, what is it that defines your identity? Because we're always going to be acting and living in the light of, of who we say we are, who, how we understand ourselves. And all of those identities are important. All of those, those cultural identities are important and they have value. But something happens in the gospel is that the gospel redefines our identity. It's doing something really, really deep and radical. It redefines our identity and how we understand ourselves um, in such a way that our prior identity is not stripped from us, but in Jesus we are given a greater and a higher allegiance than how we traditionally define ourselves. So what that means, by the way, is that if we are made new in Christ, we're given a new identity, we are no, our primary identity is no longer English-speaking white male, but as a son of the Most High God, that means that there ought to be some discontinuity between how I interact with how me as a son of, of the Most High God, what my identity looks like to other white English-speaking males. There ought to be clashes with my culture. Because it's been reshaping. Because that is no longer my primary identity. Christ has triumphed that identity. In him I've been redeemed and restored and renewed and been made whole. And now I have a whole new identity. You see, in verse 16 we see this, that Onesimus has moved from being a slave to a dear brother. Look at that, he says, I'm sending him back to you no longer as a slave but better than a slave, as a dear brother. You see, how you treat your slave and how you treat your brother are very different, are very different realities. You see, and Paul says to me, and he carries on, and this is not just a spiritual concept. I think sometimes we want to spiritualize that concept and we want to say, yeah, yeah, of course we're all one in Christ, but we, we are, of course we're still different. We're still, uh, these economic realities, cultural realities, and I'm not downplaying this, but, but Paul is saying he's actually, he's, he is very dear to me, both as a man, both in the flesh, and as a brother in the Lord. You see, that identity has changed how we relate to one another spiritually, but also how we relate to one another as human beings. How you, how you treat your brother and how you treat your slave is radically different. In verse 6, Paul explains to me in this relationship. He says this. He says, uh, six? He says, I, uh, so, uh, no, my, sorry, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith and you may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. So I have a different, let me read this. I'm reading from my, my, my Bible, but I'm actually going to read it. I think it's, that's probably not a helpful translation. It says actually, so more literally says, I pray that the koinonia of your faith, the fellowship of your faith, may be effective, in verse 6. Now, when we think of fellowship, we normally think of this idea of drinking tea 
uh, and having a chat and talking about how Liverpool is going to win the Champions League and these kind of things afterwards and how cold it is and how lovely the sun is. But Quinonia is actually far more than that. What Quinonia says, it's saying that, that, that there, there has become a mutual meeting. You have been... Uh, you have a common participation together in the, Christ, in the body of Christ. You are koinonia together. You now belong to one another. You are in Christ together. You are mutually identified with one another. Your identity and your destiny and your value is bound up with one another. Your identity is no longer primarily defined by how you were defined Although those things are important. But now in Christ, you have been koinonia together. You have fellowship together in such a way that your identity and your destiny and who you are is bound up with these people who are radically different than you. The slave has become your brother. And that's got to change all kinds of social dynamics. That's got to change all different ways of how we relate to one another. And we are bound up in this mutual bond. And it's not an individualistic thing. You see, we want to define, and we do this, and I think our, our Westernized culture does this, we want to define our relationship with God almost exclusively as a me and God thing, an individualistic thing. But the Bible doesn't do that. It says when you come, when you come to Jesus, when you have been saved and transformed, you are, your life is knitted together with, with others, with people who are radically different to you, with people who were previously your enemies, with people you hated. You are koinonia together. You are bound together in Christ, and there is no other way to be in Christ. You see, when you come to Jesus, it's asking radical things of you. We sometimes have something, I think we, we make this thing called cheap grace. We say, you just come and you pray, pray, and you ask for forgiveness, and, you go to, and, and one day you got your ticket and you go to heaven. Jesus, what Jesus is actually saying is, when you come to me, your way of living and being in this world is radically changed. Your identity is radically reshaped so that you are now koinonia together, your identity and your destiny, and, and everything you have is bound together with those, even those who traditionally were your enemies. We start living like that, friends. We start taking that biblical concept seriously, and it is going to change how we live in this world. We belong to one another as we belong to Christ. You see, this letter's chief value is not that it's a tract about slavery, because it's not really. There's too many unanswered questions for that. It's a far deeper and far more far-reaching than a letter about slavery. It is chiefly a letter about koinonia, an outworking and a practice of that principle. When you're koinonia to, together with one another, what do you do with your runaway slave? How do you deal with reconciliation with this person that you hate, that you're upset, with this person that has betrayed you? How do you deal with that? Well, you're koinonia together. And the slave is given equality and dignity in the gospel. You notice that? Paul says that both Philemon is a fellow worker in the gospel, and Onesimus. There's been an equality. Both of them have become fellow workers in the gospel, and they're given an equality and a dignity that's together, and they are bound up. Even though in society, their roles are very different. But if, he, but if Onesimus is your brother in the flesh and in the spirit... How you treat him both as a Christian and as a, as a man has got to be different. It's got to have effect. But notice even how Paul deals with Philemon, and I think this is important. He, doesn't, he says, I don't command you, even though I could. You see, he appeals to Philemon on the basis of love in verse 8. 
But what love? The love of Christ, the grace. Grace begins the letter in verse 3 and it ends the letter in verse 25. And Paul, Paul, what he does is he lays out the gospel implications. He says, I could have commanded you. You owe me your very life. Possibly the, Paul, Paul had been instrumental in Philemon's conversion. I, I have an author, a spiritual authority as an apostle that you don't have. I could command you. I could force you to do that. But he doesn't do that. He refuses to treat Philemon as a slave. You see that? He refuses to use his authority to boss him around. He's saying we're Cononians together. I will treat you with the dignity and the honor that I expect you to treat Onesimus with. I'm going to lay out the gospel implications for you. And I'm going to ask you to follow where the gospel leads. I'm not going to command you, even though I could. You see that? Even in this thing, he upholds Philemon's dignity. Can you still own people when they are your brother? That's where the gospel's leading him. As Paul lays it out, he says, Should you ever own people? Who is truly master and slave in this? If I have been set free by Jesus, how could I ever enslave another? Philemon's got to ask these questions. My master set me free. How can I not set my slave free? Paul will refuse to treat Philemon as a slave by forcing him to do what he means to do, just as he calls on him to no longer treat Onesimus as a slave. You see, very often we look at this letter and people say, why didn't Paul outright condemn slavery? I don't have all the answers to that, and I think we, we looked at that in one of the questions, but I think one of the reasons is Christianity was a very small, insignificant kind of uh, movement. I don't think they had any power. But what Paul does is he puts in place something that's actually bigger than an outright condemn, condemnation. He says, you are cononia together with your brother. Now how do you live? Follow the implications of that. He undermines the very roots, the very heart of slavery that says you can own people. It says when you follow Christ, your identity is radically changed. How you relate to others is radically changed. Your, your, your quinoneing with others is radically changed. It, it, it's, it's a whole different way of living. Now live like that. You work out the implications. You work out what it means. And I think that's freeing to us as well. Because you might want me to sit here and give you, here's one, two, three things we need to bring about reconciliation. I'm not going to do that. I'm just saying if you are in Christ, you are quinonia together with people who live in radically different circumstances, people who you've been told to hate and ignore, people you've been, you've been, uh, who, who perhaps you've been oppressed by or people that have oppressed you. Now let's follow the gospel. What does it mean that you're quinonia together with one another? You, let's work that out in every circumstance wherever we are. And that's going to mean things both personally, communally, structurally. We're going to say, I cannot condone a system that oppresses my brother while it benefits me. If my identity and my value in Christ is knitted together with this person, it cannot be okay that I benefit from economic systems while my brother or my sister is oppressed. Why? Because I'm doing the right thing? Well, because... In Christ, we're knitted together. We are koinonia together. You see, when our identity is redefined by the gospel, reconciliation slowly becomes possible. But friends, reconciliation costs. This is the second thing I want to say. The gospel radically reshapes our identity, and reconciliation becomes possible. But reconciliation costs. C.S. Lewis once famously said, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. We all agree. And I, 
I think some of the questions, some of the discussion we've had already has said we all agree the reconciliation, transformation, changing South Africa, uh, making things more just. We, we all agree it's a good principle, right? Until we actually have to do it. You see, reconciliation costs and reconciliation costs in the book of Philemon. It costs Philemon. Reconciliation requires Philemon to lay down his power and to make things right. It will cost him financially. If, he's going to, if, he, if there's going to be a koinonia, it means that he's possibly going to have to give up his slave. He's going to have to possibly write off the debt that was incurred. And slavery was an economic thing. Possibly he's even bought another slave. And now he can't even get any work out of this slave. He can't even resell him. And actually, actually, wait, if I've been redeemed by Christ, what does it mean about owning any of these people? It's going to cost him financially. It's going to cost him to give up things that are his rightfully, things that he has worked hard for to earn the money to get. But he's saying there is a different dynamic at, at play here because Jesus is, has redeemed me. I'm cornering together with people who are radically different to me. And now I need to say, what would it look like to be reconciled? What would it look like to be a, a new community? What would it look like to be a witness to the world of this new community? It's going to cost. It's going to cost him financially. It's going to cost him socially. You can bet, you can bet how it works. Onesimus is coming and walking up Philemon's driveway. I don't know if they have driveways. Well, well, I'm going to use dramatic purposes here. He's walking up the driveway. All the neighbors are watching. What's going to happen? Oh, there's that good for nothing Onesimus. He's coming back. Yeah. I think Philemon needs to. He needs to prove a point. He, he needs to make a, an example of him so that all of our slaves here know what happens when you behave like that. Now, Philemon starts saying, this man is my brother. I'm freeing him. And more than that, I'm not only freeing him, he's going to come, and Paul seems to implicate this, he's going to become a fellow worker with me in the church. He's going to have an equality. And this seems to have some kind of leadership role with Paul. Perhaps this guy's even become an elder in the church. So you're not going to beat him. You're not going to imprison him. You're not going to demand the money back from him. You're going to forgive him. You're going to treat him as a brother, and you're going to, in fact, bring him into... Um, into a leadership role and accept him as an equal member in this community you're part of. What do you think our slaves are going to start doing? What are they going to, they're going to expect the same kind of treatment. You can tell me, Philemon starts doing that, he's going to start losing business deals. He's going to start losing friends. He's going to start being excluded from his community. People are going to start saying, that Philemon, he's gone nuts. He's crazy. Don't have anything to do with him. His kids are going to start maybe having things thrown at them in the street. They're going to be called names. This is not nice, happy, happy, kumbaya, my Lord. For this to happen, it's going to cost Philemon. It might cost him everything. He might lose his business. What if he loses his house? It's going to cost Paul. We don't think it's going to cost Paul. It's going to cost Paul financially. He says, if Onesimus has done anything wrong to you, I'll pay it back. And let, let's not forget, Paul's not a wealthy man. 
But he's saying, I will take the cost of reconciliation. I will take the cost. I will, I will pay the price to see this happen. Friends, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be bridges of reconciliation in our communities? Are we willing to say, if he's done you any harm, I will pay it? If, if, those, people, if, if those people over there have done any harm, I, I will bear the cost. Because this is not what Christ does for us, isn't it? We are guilty as charged. We have done it. We, 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 have, we, we have broken his law. We've broken his heart. And Christ says, I will bear the cost. Paul's saying, I will pay it financially. It may cost Paul his friendship with Philemon. Remember, he says, he, he, is, he calls Philemon, my, my, not my very life, my dear brother, my beloved friend. It seems that Paul has been instrumental in, in, in Philemon's conversion and growing him up and discipling him. And if you have done that, you know there's a close bond. There's a love between people. He's saying, will this break that relationship? Will I lose one who feels like my son in the Lord? Will I lose that? Will I lose the ministry in this whole area? Will my ministry be discredited because of this? Will that church fall apart because of this? Is it worth it for one mingy little runaway slave? Maybe, you know, let's leave it. No, the gospel matters. We're going to make a stand on this, even if I lose financially, even if I, I lose a friendship, even if I lose a brother in the room, even if I lose this church in this ministry. It's okay. Friends, if some of us are going to talk about this, some of us are going to speak about Some of us are leaders in our church. We're going to speak about this. We're going to call our brothers and sisters to repentance, to a new way of living. We may lose churches. We may lose jobs. But are you prepared to follow where the gospel is leading? And let's not forget it will cost Anissimus. It will cost Anissimus to go back. It may cost him everything. It may cost him his very life. He may get beaten. He may get imprisoned. He may even be killed. And all of those could be within the law that Philemon's are able to, to execute. Very seldom were slaves killed. But you don't know how angry Philemon is. And yet, Philemon says, I'm going to trust my theology at this point. As God has redeemed and restored me, I'm going to trust he's redeemed and restored this person. I'm going to trust that he's doing something. That is, as Paul speaks these words of applying the gospel and speaking the words, I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is working in Philemon and he can even save him and he can even change him as he has changed me. And friends, I, I feel very, very unworthy to say this, but I think that for many of our black brothers and sisters, they are trusting their theology in coming to us for reconciliation. Everything within them, like Onesimus, like I said, I would have run away. I think many of our black brothers and sisters are saying, why? Why am I going back to this man? Why am I coming to these, these, some of our white Christians who are not listening, who don't want to listen, who are unrepentant, who the economic and the social structures remain the same, despite everything we see in Christ, despite being quinonia together, it feels like my destiny is not tied up with them. They don't care about my destiny. And yet I come to them, and I come in love, and I serve, and I speak the gospel, and I'm longing for reconciliation. I'm longing for change. I don't know what could happen to me. I'm maybe it's costing me in my community. It's costing me my reputation. People are thinking I'm a sellout. And friends, I, I think 
I want to commend our black brothers and sisters who keep doing that, who keep trusting their, their theology. And I want to say, us white Christians in this country, we need to honor that trust. We need to honor that, that, that moving forward. We need to say, they, our black brothers and sisters are trusting so much that the Spirit is working on us. They are being so faithful to Christ over and over and over and over again that we need to stop talking. We need to stop thinking what we need to know. And we need to say, I don't understand this, my brother, my sister. Please help me understand. It's going to cost Paul. It's going to cost Philemon. It costs Onesimus. It may cost the community, the church community. They may be further persecuted. If they start freeing their slaves, you can bet there's going to be chaos in that community. And my question is, what will it cost us to come together? Reconciliation is going to cost us. It's going to cost all of us. Reputation financially, economically, socially, it's going to cost us. Are we prepared, because of the gospel, to pay that price? Friends, it costs Jesus everything. It costs Jesus everything. Reconciliation costs Jesus his very life. He laid it down when we were undeserving, we were unrepentant. He came and took all the punishment and the wrath of God upon himself, the punishment we so we deserved. And he set us free. He reconciled us to God. He koinoniaed us with God. And he, and he brings us into this beautiful fellowship of koinonia with one another and says, we are bound together. He gives us that life that what was lost in Eden is back for us. We can start to, to rebuild and renew that. But friends, it's going to cost us. And to follow Jesus is going to cost us. My question is, are you prepared to pay the cost? I know that sometimes when I say things like this, and when others say things like this, particularly, and I've had to struggle with this, so I'm not standing here as any kind of guru judging anyone. As white people, we sometimes feel like you're just making me guilty. I feel so guilty. And friends, there's a sense that we are guilty. So it's not a bad feeling. But the point of this is not guilt. Guilt leads us to the cross. Guilt leads us to the cross. And Jesus pays the price. And he sets us free. And actually the message of the gospel is don't run around, walk around feeling guilty. Walk around saying, I'm free. I'm no longer bound by my culture. I'm no longer bound by my racism. I'm now free to be connoined together with people different to me. And friends, the Bible says that is life. And that is life because we've been given it in Christ. Reconciliation is beautiful. Reconciliation is costly cost Jesus everything, what will it cost you? And are we prepared to pay that cost? Shall I pray? Father God, we, I, have been guilty of reading your word, of seeing the beautiful things said in there, of talking about them, but doing little to live it. Father, I talk about fellowship. We talk about reconciliation. We talk about all these, these nice concepts, Lord. But when we think about it, oh, is, is my life really koinonia together and bound together with my brothers and sisters in such a way that I weep and I lament and I cry and I, and I anger at the injustices perpetuated against 
people who are my brothers and sisters? Am I broken by the fact that my brothers and sisters are going to bed hungry and cold tonight and I don't care? Oh, Father, won't you do that work in me? Won't you do that work in us? We, need, we cannot do this. We are, we are, we've been taught and conditioned to be separate, Lord to only care about us and ours. But Lord, you have done something beautiful and richer and even more beautiful. And Father, would you set us free? Would your spirit work in us? Would you change us and restore us and just bring us into the fullness of the gospel, a deeper, richer understanding of the gospel that sets us free to love you and as we love you and as we are loved by you to radically love others. Lord, that is life and that is hope because it is good to live under your reign as King Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. And remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.